Welcome to another episode of Sisters in Conversation, the podcast. I'm your host, Debello Motwane. I'm an attorney by profession and the founder of a platform called Sister in Law, which is a platform dedicated to empowering women through legal education. On today's episode, I got to interview the amazing Kanya Mase, who is a fierce defender for human rights and is a development practitioner who has four years post-undergraduate experience working in various fields, including non-governmental organization, intergovernmental organizations, national human rights commissions, academia, and semi-corporate within the mining and extra activities environment. By profession, she works as a company secretary at the South African Women in Mining Association, SAWIMA. Kanya boasts a colorful palette of accolades and qualifications, with a few of them being an advanced human rights course on business and human rights, an advanced human rights course on civil society law in Africa, an advanced human rights course on disability rights in an African context, an advanced human rights course on judicial enforcement of socioeconomic rights in Africa, and an advanced human rights course on sexual minority, minority rights in Africa. Listen further to hear more of Kanya's full bio. Today's episode definitely served as a reminder of all the amazing and impactful things that one can do with a qualification in law. You do not have to go the traditional routes of attorney or advocacy. Spread your wings with an aim of making a mark wherever you land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Kanya. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Debelo. Well, thanks. How are you? Thanks for Great. having me. Great. Thank you for availing yourself. Um, um, it's never easy looking for um, women who are enthusiastic about being on the show. It's Well, actually, surprisingly, everybody's been enthusiastic about being on the show and sharing their story with us. But um, it's always very nerve-wracking to to approach people send them messages hand them down for their bios and then um you know synchronize our time and our availability so that we can record so thank you thank you for for giving me this hour of your time you know anytime anytime any opportunity to share my experience and just add value to someone else's life and also just receive feedback on um, you know my process it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just one of those, yeah amazing amazing well um I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast um but we basically just going to have a conversation about who Kanya is um you know as a person and how you found yourself in the legal profession how you got an interest in the legal profession and then we'll discuss some of the social ills that um keep us awake at night so without wasting any time, can you tell us about your upbringing? Who is Kanya? Which primary school did you go to? Which high school did you go to? Why did you then decide to pursue um, a career in law? What made you study law? Okay, so I really, really struggle with this question. Who is Kanya? <laughs> uh, I'm literally just trying to figure myself out day by day. But um, we'll just start off with Kanya is a young um a Tosa girl I grew up in Johannesburg so I've got a bit of an identity crisis there but um, I'm from Johannesburg I went to a number of primary schools 
Um, I've even forgotten half of them. Jeez, Houghton Primary, Parkhurst Primary, Berkeley Primary, and then mm -hmm. high school, I went to St. Mary's for my first year, and then I went to Parktown Girls uh, throughout the rest of my high school career. I've been in all girls' schools throughout high school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a mother of a seven-year-old boy. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a company secretary by profession but I'm an advocate for human rights and democratization as well as development in my spare time. So okay. um, I think I'll get into why law. I don't know if I've covered my brief background in that regard. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe into... yeah. Yeah, no, I was gonna say maybe you can share like maybe your experiences, um, you know, why all girls schools, what was your experience like, and did that have anything to do with why you then decided to study law? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, growing up in primary school, you're interacting with all sorts of people, it's a co-ed school, you're not really exposed to the nitty gritties of what it means to be a woman in South Africa. Um, mm. You you live in a bubble almost because you're all just kids. No one's taking anything seriously. Mm. So when I went into an all girls school, it's 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 a combination of things. There's the competition element of being a woman, how competitive we can be um, amongst each other, but also just the issues that are raised within that safe space that's created of an all girls school. I remember at one point in grade ten, we had an intervention. Um, a lot of the girls were acting out, girls going missing, going to boyfriends over the weekend, a whole lot of high school girls drama, you know. And um, there was an intervention then at the parents' request, I think at the time, to just have a chat with the whole grade 10 um, group, just to find out where we are in life. And they brought in some psychologists and we had discussions, open discussions about where are we, what's happening in your life, what are your past traumas, why are we in this position where we are a delinquent group. Sure. And in that case, <laughs> so in that space you find out that people's um, sexual abuses, emotional abuses. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a day of just crying and relating to each other on another level, more sensitive of each other, but also more united going forward mm -hmm. as women living in South Africa. So that's when GBV kind of became a reality for me because I've lived a sheltered life for most of my life. Mm -hmm. um, my mom mm -hmm. just made sure that, you know, stay in school, um, come back home after school. If you're doing sports, I'll fetch you myself and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I just realized that my peers, some of them aren't afforded that opportunity. Some of them take public transport and have to walk from the bus stop to home. And in between that space, things are happening. They're mm -hmm. exposed to, to the violent nature of the society we live in. So from sure. that point on, I think in grade 10, I was exposed to women's issues, women's welfare, mm -hmm. just a whole bunch of things. Some uh, some of the girls had single moms so just the social socioeconomic impact uh, of you know our past and what that has the impact that that has on my own peers and their mothers and you know just as women going forward then what what space do I have to take up within that environment to make sure that my kids don't have to be exposed to the challenges that some of my peers and myself in one way or, or another are exposed to Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of my journey, I think, as, as an advocate for women's rights. Um, and then I had a high school history teacher 
who was just so passionate um, about history, about rights, um, just outside of the scope of history, she just teaches all sorts of things about the law um, and just drawing the parallels then for us in our history class between the law and politics. And then that's just what, um, I guess, inspired me then to go into law and not just to look at history and politics, but mm. the legal aspect of our political history and the impact that the law has in rectifying and propelling a different agenda for South Africa within the constitutional dispensation. Mm -hmm. And then um, where did you go to um, varsity and, and, and what um, inspired you to choose that specific uh, university? So I went to varsity at the University of Witwatersrand. I took a gap year after high school because mm -hmm. uh, I had a bit of a challenge trying to choose which law avenue to take. So you have the mm -hmm. hybrid avenue, which is the BCom law and the BA law, mm -hmm. and then straight LLB. So my mom, just seeing this crisis that I was in, she just suggested to take a gap year and make sure you make the right decision. Because what I'm not doing is paying for school fees for someone who doesn't know what they want. And I really appreciate yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. You know? So I took the year, I consulted with a few people. Um, ordinarily, what would have sparked my interest would have probably been the BA law or something like a PPE. PPE is politics, psychology, and economics. Um, but I just ended up going with the LLB because I was more interested in the policy reform part of it, the legal aspect. So once a party passes a certain policy, how does that come into becoming a law? Do you know what I mean? So I just felt like having the news and current affairs and Twitter and all of that, I have access to the politics of mm -hmm. South Africa. Mm -hmm. I just need legal grit to kind of strengthen um, my career going forward. So I looked up a number of law schools. Um, the Oliver Schreiner Law School at Vitz was one of the best. Mm -hmm. So I just got up and it was close to home so I wouldn't have to pay for raise. I could still stay at home. Okay. Um, and just pursue studies. Um, okay. Yeah. My master's at the University of Pretoria with the Center for Human Rights. And how was your um, varsity life, your experience on campus? What were some of the challenges that you faced um, or some of the, you know, social ills that you, that became highlighted to you? You know, you mentioned in high school things like, um, um gbv you became aware of during the 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 time when you guys were put in assembly and had a big talk but what were some of the other social ills that you became exposed to on campus or you know any any personal challenges that you faced um i think i'll start off firstly with just the levels of poverty we experience as students um, you're left to re like feed for yourself you leave high school mm -hmm. you're 18 you barely know anything and you have you're expected to study on a hungry stomach because most students are either on bursaries which bursaries do give you some sort of stipend but the expense of living these days is just ridiculous you know and managing your finances to begin with is not something we're taught in school which is something that really needs to be addressed just financial literacy so even oh, if you are getting yeah, type and yeah. you're going to mismanage that because you have no clue what to do with two thousand rand because mm, maybe mm. Your, your what do you call it when your parents give you your pocket money 
in mm-hmm. high school mm-hmm. five hundred. Next thing you're one point five up, you know. So that that's one thing I had noticed from personally as myself, but also with my peers. Just we were hungry. Poverty was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think access to resources. So from a perspective of the right to education, there's very little access to resources. So they place them there, but in order for you to utilize it, if you want to study at night, you need to have money for Uber. Do you hear what I'm saying? Mm. You need to be able to go back home. Mm. You need to have the money to pull you through. You need the Red Bull or whatever. You're not just going to sit there the you need to sustain yourself um the library some people didn't have access to textbooks so they're forced to sit in the library all these challenges are interrelated and interconnected mm-hmm. but ultimately speak to the levels of poverty experienced by most black students in south africa and us trying to you know just do better for ourselves and our families but the red tape that exists is so obvious and yet so understated that's just just one social ill that I can pick up on. But for me personally, um, the one thing that stuck out for me during my varsity experience was probably fees must fall. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I was a leader, but I was definitely actively involved. I just wanted to be there. I, I had something to say about that because even me personally, coming from a middle-class family, it wasn't easy. It, it literally varsity expensive mm-hmm. for everybody I, I, I don't think it matters which mm-hmm. class mm-hmm. you're from it is an expense on someone's pocket and it is highly expensive because it doesn't it doesn't just stop with fees there's transport food textbooks and all of that involved oh, yeah, yeah. so that's just the one thing that stuck out for me but I think all of that being said my varsity experience was actually pretty damn cool I'll tell you what, mm, we are mm. going to Vits, um, you have Bramfontein, which is quite social, it's a hub. So as mm. students, you rarely ever feel alone, you know, you know that you can pop in mm. for lunch, even with your student budget, you can have lunch with a friend somewhere. And it's just learning to then from an early age strike that social and work life or school life balance Um from a university. Mm, mm. So we, my friends and I, for instance, on a Wednesday, easily would go out and go have dinner somewhere have a few drinks thereafter go study and that's just something then I've learned to, to manage going forward in my career but I think um, so that is so interesting that you say that because yeah. when I think of my varsity life I never think of how how inexpensive it was to socialize like, <laughs> like now that you mentioned it I'm like yeah I was actually going out for dinners and like, like it was it was it was manageable and and mm. we didn't have these expensive taste buds that we have today you know so going out for dinner was like a simple you know burger and chips experience and and you you really did learn how to network from 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 campus mm. no i think it's really understated the experience that we do have exposure to university because it sets mm. the tone you are going forward pretty much because mm. you're exposed to a large variety of people. So in high school, it's a very contained environment, but varsity mm. it's everyone and their brother and their mother and their backgrounds and their thoughts on the world. And you're challenged mm. emotionally, intellectually. It, it's an interesting experience. Mm. And just to, to then shed light on that as well. Um, I think people should also take note of the fact that study groups, um, 
play an important role in supporting you throughout varsity, consulting with lecturers. Um, my experience, I relied a lot on that. And as a result, I then started to pull away from attending lectures, funny enough, and I started self-studying just to teach myself to think critically and work independently. Mm -hmm. um, I think something worth sharing. I'm not saying people shouldn't go to class, but just learning that skill of you study in advance, you study alone, and where you can push your boundaries and then consult where you feel confused. It's, it's an immeasurable, um, I think, experience for me in terms of how I've managed to fit into the working environment then. I rely a lot less on, on my supervisors and I ask for help where I need it. And I just thought that's mm -hmm. worth sharing, just learning that skill of working independently and critically. I love that because I mean, I, I well, I was on a hybrid system that means that mm. I only self-taught myself the early morning lectures because <laughs> I was not, I was not about <laughs> to be, <laughs> I was not about to be on campus at seven a.m. and I just couldn't get out of bed. And so on the days that I had early classes, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna teach myself this, um, this module. And yeah, that's that's exactly how I got by. And then um, tell us a little bit about um, the job hunting process for you what made you decide against or what made you decide to follow the specific path that you're on um you know did you do articles or did you do pupillage what tell us a little bit about that oh my job hunting experience has been colorful it's been colorful to say the least um, i was gonna say that i was gonna say like you <laughs> your job experience really really exceeds your 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 age <laughs> yeah it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot of ups and downs but also a lot of triumphs and just mm. learning through the process but I'll just start with my first job ever during my gap year because I obviously couldn't just sit and do nothing mm. so I started working in retail in at the time the pop-up stores were becoming a trend so mm. arts on May and all of that so I got into a few of those started working in retail as a salesperson admin person and just speaking to clients and stuff that was my main job at the time didn't really feed into my ultimate law journey but just some work experience and work ethic learned there was quite useful mm. but um, I think my first job-ish ever was probably vac work it wasn't a real job but it was vacation work so before you start mm. articles for the benefit of those who don't know you have to do vac work with the firm where they almost pre-qualify you prior to you commencing your articles and I think it's two or three years before you even graduate and start articles mm -hmm. So I did that with Weber Wenzel for a week in my third year. So I had applied in my second year and I got in for February in my third year. I did mm. it for a week in the finance and I forgot what the other department is, but I was basically in the finance and facilities department, not knowing anything about numbers. I am not a numbers person. So I really girl, struggled girl. with the department. <laughs> I was like, no, copy me. This is not my life could never be me so I wasn't retained obviously um but that's fine I just realized you know Kanya don't forestell you're not a corporate girl and that's just period you know that's unbearable mm -hmm. so after that experience then I started looking for other internships or volunteer work just to get a feel of the industry 
and um, I applied at CERI. So CERI is the Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa. It's based in Brahm. So they usually then just recruit students from Brits because we're quite close in proximity. Mm-hmm. And at CERI, I did some field work. So field work entails doing research. At the time, there was someone more senior to me doing the actual footwork field work. So doing the interviews on the ground. But I would sit in the office and receive clients. At the time, we're working on a case called Operation Clean Sweep, where informal traders in the Joburg CBD had been illegally removed from the streets. Their equipment, their stock was confiscated. So the economic loss thereof just gave rise to a constitutional case. So Mm. we had been working on that. Um, And I think they won in the end. It, it was quite strong. The case was quite strong, but I think the, the traders won in the end. So what I did is I just took statements from um, the complainants and just did their particulars, just the basics, legal drafting, um, which really helped me then in terms of getting a practical feel of, of legal drafting and legal pleadings, which we were then going to get into a, in civil procedure. Mm-hmm. So that was my first real job in human rights, I guess. And then I didn't, I don't think I worked after that more than I then pursued my master's after varsity. So in between mm-hmm. that was fees school and, you know, Amandla, Amandla, and that just ignited me, you know, I was yeah, just hyped yeah. off like human rights, that's me. And then I applied for a master's um, in human rights at the University of Pretoria and I got in and we commenced, I think, early January 2017. So that master's is a one-year degree, six months coursework, and then four months or so of a mini dissertation, completing your mini dissertation, and it's an exchange Mm. program. So in the second semester, then you're sent off to another African country to do your research and just kind of get a feel of other issues because it's a LLM human rights and democratization in Africa, not just South Africa. Okay, that that makes sense. Because I was wondering how you... Um, traveled to Kenya when you were busy with your master's so yeah can you just yeah tell us a little bit about your time spent in Kenya that was amazing to say the least so Kenya I think Kenya's constitution is from 2010 and they kind of mimicked South Africa's constitution so for Mm -hmm. me it was just like a bonus yeah it's quite new it's it's Mm. quite a new constitution so our constitutions were very similar in nature. And as a result, my colleague and I, it was two of us, were both South African. We both elected to go to Kenya because mm-hmm. the constitutions were just so similar. Drawing parallels would have been an almost easy experience, but also quite interesting experience to see how the two constitutions play out in different jurisdictions. So we did that. And as part of the master's, you have to do in-service training sort of. So we had to do an internship while we're in Kenya because there is no classes, it's just you and your research. And then mm. half of that time then you utilize to do your internship. So I joined an organization called Katiba Institute. And at the time I was there, it was the 2017 elections. And that organization was then challenging um, the various irregularities with the electoral process in Kenya at the time, because they mm. deal with democratization and governance. So that was interesting. Um, and in the past, Kenya did have electoral violence. So it was it was quite a sensitive time in Kenya. I really enjoyed being there. It opened my eyes up. And I just felt a sense of privilege as well being South African and watching our electoral system against theirs where we experience 
almost little to no electoral violence, but we do experience challenges within the corruption since then. And so, like yeah. to, to someone like who's listening now, can you um, advise on whether or not this exchange program still takes place? If someone is interested in maybe going this mm-hmm. route as a means of um, studying for studying human rights and possibly even traveling to another African country, is this a program that's still available at the University of Pretoria? Mm-hmm. So it is. I think because of COVID last year, they might have put it on hold. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happened in 2020 because there were travel restrictions, but I know mm-hmm. um, this year they're back on. I've seen on the various social media websites, the students have been welcomed, but the program is still going on. Um, I think it started in 2000, so it's relatively new but old. Um, and I genuinely encourage people to apply. If you have an interest in human rights, you start it off in varsity, you make it known in varsity while you're doing your undergrad that this is who you are. You show your passion for human rights because that makes the application uh, process for you much easier. Mm. And how was that application process? Did you have to write an essay? Um, mm. Was it a fairly easy application process? So it's quite cutthroat because you're getting students from all over Africa. Um, so I think in my class, there were about four South Africans. Everyone else is from the rest of Africa. It's not a South African master's course per se. It's for all Africans. So you can imagine mm, how competitive mm, it is, mm. which is why I encourage you to show from your Bill of Rights, your constitutional law, your admin law subjects. You just need to zone in on those. If you do know that you have that interest, zone in, make sure your mark good. Do those field work um, job experiences with Siri and other NGOs and you don't need to get paid for it. I got paid per hour. I don't remember the rate for Siri, but you really don't have to get paid at the undergrad level. You just need to show that passion for human rights at an early Mm. stage Mm. Um, community service where you can. But what it is, is you send through an application um, basically saying cover page and CV and then they'll call you back and then they'll say, okay, cool, you've been shortlisted. And then they give you a topic. I think my topic was discuss the relationship between religion and LGBTQIA rights. I think something like that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. conflict that exists. And at that stage, you can imagine as a final year or third year student, you don't know too much, but if you have the interest, then you'll know the language of um, sexual, sexual, minorities rights you get what I'm Mm, saying mm. it's not a language known to everyone but if you can show that you have an interest in this at that early stage then they might consider you another thing is the other applicants were much older so I was one of the youngest people in my class because most of Mm. them were working that's how they got accepted but just having that history of human rights really helps for someone who's coming straight from varsity into the master's program yeah oh thank you for sharing that I think it is important um, for someone who's interested to know that you can actually access the program um, mm. straight out of varsity and you can also access the program if you've been working for a few years. And mm. what was the downside of, of being in Kenya? Can you, can you share maybe with, I don't know, compare some of the social ills um, or ca- social challenges in Kenya to South Africa or just any of your personal experience of the downside of, of being you know, away from home? 
Mm -hmm. This is interesting because my experience in Kenya revealed to me that South Africa actually has a lot to work on in terms of infrastructure. So their buildings are like Santon buildings. You, you don't have that image of Kenya in your mind before you go. You, you almost have an idea that it's underdeveloped. But Kenya, and they don't show you on TV. They Kenya, they don't show you on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, guys, these are fancy buildings. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. We don't have Wi-Fi everywhere and we're lacking in that oh. regard. Our prices oh. are high. Kenya, you got a restaurant automatically connected, no stress whatsoever. Mm, mm. Um, but I do think infrastructure-wise, the roads, um, perhaps, I, I literally, I can't point out, Dibelo, honestly speaking, a downside more than I had seen where we're falling short as South Africa, given given the, the opportunities we have available to ourselves. Mm, so mm. the they're set up pretty much like us. So Nairobi is quite, it's quite flexy. It's it's fast-paced as a Joburg of sorts. Um, they have Uber, they have Taxify. There's nothing that they don't have really. It's just how accessible it is. And it's actually mm. more accessible that side. You find less people using public transport and using Ubers because it's more accessible and affordable mm -hmm. than you do here. So, mm. Yeah, it, okay. it was a good experience. It was a good experience, yeah. All right, great. And then, um, you know, you co you completed a number of certificates, um, uh, short courses, if I can call it that. Uh, mm -hmm. Which institution did you use for that? And um, how did that, how did those build into you now being Kanya, who works at the South African Women in Mining Association? So the certificates... So one thing I learned um, while doing my master's, our colleagues would always say, whatever you do, put it in your CV. It could be the smallest mm. thing and upgrade it. Don't just state it as just in passing. Upgrade it. Like if they say, if you did some admin, say you were at an administrator, like give yourself a position, prop yourself. You know what I'm saying? Mm, mm. So those then came about as part of the master's program. They were quite, they were compulsory. Um, it was a week-long course where us as the master's students, together with other people that had an interest in the course, would sit for a period of a week, um, undergo lectures and various exercises, and then as the master's class, then we'd be examined on the contents of the short course, um, which then goes to prove how comprehensive this master's course is. It doesn't just give you the, the degree, but it also gives you a number of short courses, which mm -hmm. you can add to and just that extra experience apart from the theory but you get the practical knowledge with people in the field so for mm -hmm. instance some of the people with disability rights and then mm -hmm. you had a judge who was blind you have um do i recall we had a discussion on albinism and mm -hmm. i had never considered that to be a disability but the challenges experienced by people with albinism and then you have someone with albinism come talk to mm -hmm. you about killings that are going on in their community because of rituals sure. Sure. Uh, sexual minorities we had um, a lady who was intersex who's quite well known who came to talk to us about her experience so not just the theory but practically how do these issues play out in real life mm -hmm. I think take away from that all right and then um tell us about your your time spent at the South African Human Rights Commission as a legal research intern. How did you land that job? Um, 
what was the experience like and what was uh, also again the application process like for somebody who may have an interest in joining the commission mm -hmm. so after my masters i really struggled to get a job i'm not gonna lie it wasn't easy um, i applied to various internships uh, I think I mentioned that I might have I got an internship with the it's the UN Environment Program in Kenya at the time, mm -hmm. but the UN doesn't pay their interns, so it's like, how do you expect me to get there? How do you expect me to live while I'm there? Mm -hmm. I had to reject that offer, and then I was like, you know what? What's the closest thing to UN around me? Because obvi obviously, I think as a human rights um, advocate, you, you're you're gunning for the UN. That's like the peak of your career. Once you're in, then you're done. So that was the reasoning behind applying for the UN and wanting that so bad. But then when you realize that you're not going to get paid, then the story changes a bit. So yeah, then I went yeah. for the closest thing then at home, which was the Human Rights Commission. Um, I had to go through a bit of a, a city background process, talking to people in the background, former colleagues, family. Hi, can you set up a meeting for me with ABC? I'd really like to put my case forward. I know they're not paying interns currently. There's no budget, but I would really appreciate an opportunity to get the, the practical knowledge in terms of human rights research and specifically a human rights focused institution in South Africa for someone who's just completed their master's they couldn't turn me down I was like you absolutely cannot that that would yeah. be a crime <laughs> so that's how I got in I then had to apply send my CV um, a motivation letter and then that's when the HR process actually started so to be honest there was no vacancy open at the time but I hustled my way in. Yeah, I had to hustle my way in and just to put a case forward for myself to say, I, I don't mind if you don't pay me, I'm at home. All I need is transport costs of which my parents had to cover that. And then I just show up for work every day. Yeah. And what, what, what were the day-to-day -day, um, tasks at the commission? What, 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 what does a typical day look like? What kind of matters were you dealing with? So I was working in the CEO's office. Um, the structure of the commission is that you have commissioners and then so almost like a board of directors in a company. And then you have your CEO, your CFO, your COO. And then there's a commissioner's program under the commissioners and then there's the CEO. So I wasn't directly involved in terms of resolving human rights disputes. So there'll be a commissioner for equality, a commissioner for children's rights, um, I've forgotten there is civil and political, but for, for major human rights elements, there was a commissioner allocated to each right. But I would work quite closely with then the research associates under that commissioner's program where they'd asked me to assist on doing research on a particular issue. So at the time, there was an issue around ambulances in the Eastern Cape and the accessibility to people and the right to health because of the state of the roads excuse me, because with the state of the roads, the ambulances weren't able to access your more rural areas, which impacts the right to health mm -hmm. and in extreme circumstances, the right to life. So I'd have to do research on those kinds of issues, but mostly working under the CEO, um, we do op-eds, which are opinion pieces on various issues. His interest was service delivery at the time and how that relates to law and people's rights. So socioeconomic rights, particularly your right to water, health, 
sanitation and all of that mm. is directly linked to politics and the actions of politicians in delivering those services and RDPs, the right to housing and all of that. So we then delve deeper into that intersection between service delivery and human rights. Um, we dealt a bit with the expropriation of land issue. I think it was the first year at the time where public opinion was now open in terms of should there be expropriation without compensation. Mm -hmm. So those mm -hmm. were my day-to-day, -day, mostly research um, various human rights issues as instructed. Um, what else was important? There was a project at the time running called the National Preventative Mechanism, which related to torture in prisons. And that was quite an interesting experience for me because there's a there's a view that prisoners don't have rights mm, and mm. It, so the preventative mechanism mechanisms there in terms of ensuring that they're not tortured they get adequate food um, and all of that that was interesting sure lovely you know when i'm um just reflecting on some of the, the other work you've also done with working for ngos and having an interest in working with and for NGOs, it really just highlights what I always try to tell, especially, um, you know, the students who follow the sustainable platform, that you, your, your law degree is not black and white. You don't have to be an advocate. You don't have to be an attorney. There are so mm -hmm. many other avenues that you can explore when you mm -hmm. are, um, you know, still in school or even if you find yourself in a gap year, and, you know, you came to the realization, luckily, early enough that corporate wasn't for you. Some of us, mm -hmm. like, we went through corporate and we were like, yo, what is this? You know, so you came to that realization early enough. And I think it's very just, like, it's, it's very encouraging that you've gone the NGO route as well and that you you have experience in, in you know, all these um, commissions that you've worked for. And, yeah, I really, I really love the fact that you you are able to tell us today that there is an other, there is an other avenue that road less traveled um, in NGOs. So can you maybe tell us about how um, your contribution, if I can say, um, what was your contribution from a perspective of someone who studied law? What was your contribution at an NGO? How did your studies um, intersect or align with your time at the NGO? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, so perhaps then, let me backtrack a bit then mm. to, to the internships I've taken and the work I've done with NGOs and try to place myself accordingly. Mm. Um, so after the commission then, I worked for an NGO called the Grasha Michelle Trust. Mm. Um, focus on women and children's rights and I worked as the legal and governance intern there so I was doing a bit of governance doing the contracts managing their grants system so not particularly the human rights that I had studied to do in terms of enforcing um, children and women's rights I wasn't quite exposed to the programmatic work but more the legal work so I provided legal support having though that background of the importance of women and and children's rights then mm -hmm. I think it kind of bolstered my 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 application a bit in getting in that work kind of then opened me up to corporate governance and board governance 
which then led me to the South African Human Rights Commission. So I think my contribution at Grasha Michelle, let me just backtrack, sorry. My contribution at Grasha Michelle was without minimizing myself, but was minimal and it was more of a learning experience. I always take my internships as a learning experience. I'm absorbing. It's all about me taking in more than I can give. There isn't much I can give at an internship level more than I expect to receive as much as I can. And I don't know if that's selfish of me. <laughs> I just want to, I use that platform to, to, to learn as much as I could rather than give what I don't have yet, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But in, when I did find uh, a medium to be able to contribute, I took up a lecturing job at Varsity College and became a full-time lecturer where I felt like then I had enough experience and knowledge to be able to give and share. And I was lecturing first years and second years. And then I was also supervisor for a final year student's dissertation or thesis rather. And at that point, then I felt like I could give, I could contribute, I could say this is my experience, pretty much like the experience and the conversation we're having now. I'd have those conversations with my students just to say there are other avenues. You don't have to go corporate, you could be an academic, you Mm. could be in the NGO sector, you could be in-house counsel, you could be a company secretary, you can be anything you dream of being with a law degree. Patrice Mutsepe is a lawyer, by qualification and he's a businessman he's a mm, mm, mm. so there are options you don't have to be an advocate or an attorney but if you want to happily then we had conferences where we'd um, have speakers from different areas of law just to speak to the students to advise them at some point we had a guy who had just become an associate a friend of mine just to speak to the students and tell them gents it's not easy don't mm. if you're not in the right mental space to do your articles don't do it take your time making that decision Pursue something else. Mm. yeah so that was my contribution at that at that platform but I think currently now having worked at the South African Women in Mining Association I do board governance so what a company secretary does it, it doesn't lend to its name at all really it's not mm, secretary mm. it's just the title uh, but i do board and corporate governance so that means almost trying to manage the board babysitting your board mm. here there's a bit of what, 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 just making sure that your board is always complying and the company is always complying um, with various regulations with the companies act um, drafting contracts for them and also just ensuring because it's a women's rights organization and women empowerment, then that's where my human rights comes into play, which is why it's been such a great fit for me because it allows me exposure into uh, the corporate governance, which I had been initially exposed to at Grasha Michelle, but also allows me then to implement my learnings of women's rights from the LLM. Sure, I love that. And being in a space of, um, being in a space where the highlight is, is, is you know, women's rights or, um, or women empowerment, it just comes full circle from, from going to an old girl school, you know, old girls high school. And that, and for me, that is also one of the consistent threads throughout your, throughout your journey in, in, in the legal profession, that your underlying theme has always been either women's rights 
for all humans' rights. And the consistency in that is absolutely amazing for me. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, like I said, you've highlighted the fact that law is not black and white. You don't have to, you don't have to be, you know, an advocate. You don't have to be an attorney. But having said that, I see that you do have an interest in in eventually pursuing um, the advocacy route. Why is that? I do because it's it's a requirement. It's a box ticker. It's weird. I hate it, but it's a box tick box ticker. So mm-hmm. I go through my LinkedIn all the time, and all these senior senior positions, so directorship. Um, whether you want to work for the UN, but most requirements in senior level positions, senior management, require you to have admission as an attorney or an advocate oh. with crazy experience, like eight to 10 years or something. Mm-hmm. And I've got the experience in the short time, but it just doesn't span out in the amount mm-hmm. of years and theoretical knowledge. But I also don't have that qualification that last box ticker because mm-hmm. i'd like to the UNAU, you know propel the development agenda but i just can't I, I won't get i'll get a almost junior level Bro. without are that you, are you nervous about what are you nervous about the pay cut or not even a pay that you will be that you will need to go through um during your pupillage I'm not, I'm not because I'm trying to start up some businesses. I'm into farming currently. Yeah. How's that going? I haven't started yet. I'm still at the business plan stage. I've got the property and I'm trying to acquire more adjacent properties. It's, it's a weird process, Mm -hmm. but I'm really enjoying it. I really am enjoying it. So I'm trying to start up businesses. I'm into energy as well, renewable energy. So if I can just get that started before then I take that pay cut, then I won't be affected. Yeah. As yeah, yeah. If I can just get myself up properly, which is, I think, something that uh, maybe just to share with other people as well, where you have an opportunity to pursue a business, do it sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. As soon as you think of the idea, so that if you do come across a page in, in your life where you want to do your master's, your PhD, your honors, whatever field you're in, you can't afford to take that gap without losing yourself completely. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you very much for sharing your absolutely colorful journey with us. Um, like I said at the beginning, your your experience definitely exceeds your your age <laughs> you've you've done quite a lot and i think you've you've really had some meaningful contributions to to you know everything that you've put your heart into thank you very much for sharing your story with us and um just in closing you know it wouldn't it it wouldn't be i, I wouldn't be achieving the purpose of the platform if I didn't touch on some of the social ills that exist. And mm-hmm. um, in closing, I just want to, earlier on when you touched on um, being exposed to GBV in, mm-hmm. at a high school level, you said, um, you know, students used to have to catch the bus and then walk down an alley to get home. And, you know, some of them really got exposed to some harmful things. What mm-hmm. do you think that 
we as women in the legal profession can do to raise awareness or fight against the plight of gender-based violence in South Africa? How can we contribute towards the fight as, as, as women in the legal profession? Hectic. Um, I think I'll start off with the legal reform aspect. So using our tools as weapons in the sense that there is a gap in terms of the Domestic Violence Act, which then it doesn't quite criminalize GBV as it is, as to call it what it is, call a spade a spade. So just to say the gap to address Landova, um, you have to get a protection order. And if I'm correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm correct, you have to get a protection order. And once then that person violates the protection order, that becomes the actual crime. Am I correct? Correct. Am I correct, Diblo? Correct, correct. Correct. Yeah, so just addressing something as ridiculous as the non-existence of gender-based violence as a crime against humanity mm-hmm. is something that we really need to address in our professional capacities because pretty much now it lies in our hands as the legal field to say, okay, what laws do we have in place to, to punish people who commit GBV? I know mm-hmm. the law is like a miracle worker, but it's something. It's pretty much one of the strongest penalties we have to, to avert people from committing certain crimes. So. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm not calling for death penalty. No, the right to life is very much important. But Mm. what are you criminalizing? Are you telling me that I have to get beaten up again and someone has to come into my space and possibly kill me for me then to say, okay, GBV, I'm dying. It's happening again. So Mm. just that initial response. What is our initial response to GBV and what does the law do to to protect me from, from a perpetrator once I've reported it the first time? I think that's the first thing. Secondly, then, from a GBV first perspective and a social justice perspective, where you are a victim of GBV, what social services are available to you after the fact? Is there a home that you can run to? Is there a shelter that you can go to so that you're not stuck in the same space as your abuser if it is a domestic issue? But sometimes mm-hmm. GBV is so random, I can't even believe it. Yeah. So instances where it is intimate partner or parents or whatever what safe spaces are created for women to go seek help and recover and to rehabilitate and and just to build to build themselves up again i don't know i don't think hearing enough on that um yes definitely um but just on what you've said about um once you've been a victim, are there any homes available, um, any places of safety? I think a lot of the issues as well also lie in the fact that there's not enough funding for the existing homes. So maybe because from from a social perspective, um, there's only so much that the law can do for you. But you know, as as from a social perspective, like I'm saying where are the resources, where's the funding once you have found the safe space. Um, most of the time these NGOs obviously rely on donations as well. So I think just as women, you know, when we are whenever we we are aware of the fact that we are in a privileged position, we must really, really be intentional about constantly donating to 
to um to uh what do they call them uh shelters to to safety shelters we really need to be intentional about that we and and it's such a small contribution every time we go into this camp for our own toiletries we can take time two of everything and then um create almost like care packages that you know women who arrive with literally the clothes on their back can mm-hmm. can know that when they get to a home there's going to be toiletries for them there's going to be a toothbrush there's going to be um roll on there's going to be a, a, a face a face towel you know just those little things i really think that every every once you know in a while once a year twice a year we can all kind of make that intentional contribution that is true i've actually never thought of just doing the bare minimum like yeah. just helping someone to lead a dignified life with the basic things that you take for granted mm. you don't need to go the high level of the law and making a noise and protesting mm. Mm. but while you're doing your own toiletry shopping hook someone up Absolutely. and and it also goes around just restoring the dignity of 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 women who have been abused like uh, you know that getting to a getting to a, a safe home already strips away so much of your dignity mm-hmm. and is it not worse for you to not even know whether you'll be able to have a warm shower or you know have soap have a toothbrush so those are the little things that we can do just to fight um the the effects of domestic or gender based violence that that's true but then the next thing is how do we fight the stigma because then we have an issue where people don't report because of the stigma mm. so we have a portion mm. that we can't actually assist because they exist and they have the courage to to leave but then there's the other side where people are dying in silence. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I guess that will that 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 the problem with that is that it's also just a personal decision, you know. So mm. we really just have to continue using platforms such as this to educate and raise awareness and and encourage women to to speak up. Mm. I guess then as well, it just also to come full circle i think as legal professionals like the platform that you've opened up where you give women advice on different issues where it be marital um, labor also perhaps having workshops like this in in those homes to say to empower and capacitate like capacity mm. building professional ex- um, perspective then to say Mama, I know you're down and under right now but if you take four years of your life you can get an LOB I don't know if mm. I'm making sense and I'm hyping up too much but just mm. the same platform we're opening up here where they might not have access to the to the virtual or the digital mm. is there a way mm. we can take these kinds of conversations down yeah. and empower I love, I love that I'm definitely taking note of that I love that sure yeah yeah sure Kanya thank you thank you so much um thank you for this conversation for veiling mm-hmm. yourself um and just in the interest of time is there any last remark any last comment anything you'd like to share that I didn't ask you but that you are you know burning to just um to share with us mm. 
I don't think there's anything we haven't covered. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess just to share that we do have a young woman in mining, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, young women in mining and energy alliance within the South African Women in Mining Association, where we will be capacitating and um, training young women, offering job shadowing opportunities, also mm. just responding to um, gender responsive budgeting. Is there enough money targeted towards empowering women professionally, decision making positions, and all of that? So that's just one thing we want to work on and I'm happy to take on girls for job shadowing for for anything really just exposure young girls of any age um, and just share light on the day-to-day -day of our lives and how they can go about making their decision making and I think the last thing is to work hard but play harder but also work smart so you don't have to work hard <laughs> I think yeah, that's my yeah. motto yeah yeah all right and how can people get involved with um, the program you just mentioned um young women in mining alliance is available they can email me my email address is k mase k m a s e i don't know if i should be doing this verbatim yeah sure, sure. <laughs> k mase at sawima.org.za sawima is s-a-w-i-m-a dot org dot z-a and then they can just send me an expression of interest no cv really i just i just want to be there for young girls yeah all right all right thank you so much thank you for your time kanya um they they, they aren't enough thank yous your your conversation has been invaluable and thank you for sharing your journey with us Thanks for having me and thanks for enlightening me as well throughout the conversation, especially about the, the toiletries and the, mm -hmm. the contribution we can make for GBV. Mm -hmm. My um, absolute pleasure. Okay, dogs. Thank you, Tanya. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Tabalo.